Hello, and welcome to another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling, and I'll be with you today as we talk about where to invest for maximum return with minimal risk. Hi, everybody. This is Pat with Mara Poling. Today, we're going to be discussing where to invest your hard-earned dollars in great multifamily assets that are going to do two things. One is provide you with the total return that we've talked about previously, and two is to do so with a modest or as minimal amount of risk as you can possibly find. What are the secrets to finding the right places to invest? So we're going to talk about this from two standpoints. The first is We'll talk about it on a national basis, where you may be looking at a number of markets you might choose to invest in. And then we're going to talk about, if you're an owner-operator, where you'll be looking at making an investment in your own town, in your own community, and how you can evaluate that. Where do you think it would make sense to invest in multifamily real estate? Well, it seems kind of natural to think about markets where demand is growing, and supply isn't keeping up with it. What what drives growth for multifamily real estate? Well, things like more renters. Well, where do renters come from? Renters come from growth in population, more jobs, better jobs, growing income. So those are all factors that we want to take a look at in some detail. We also want to understand the supply side of the equation. If we've got a lot of growth and we're growing supply at the same rate or faster, well, that may not be the best market for us to look at. Conversely, if we've got really solid growth and we don't have a lot of response on the supply side, that's the kind of market we want to really try and focus on. We're going to go through today a number of different criteria that we look at. This certainly isn't an exhaustive list. There are other factors you may choose to include in your evaluation. We want to share with you what we look at, and hopefully from that you can gain some value and some understanding of what is the right market to be looking at and what are the criteria that help make that make sense. We do an analysis of all the metropolitan statistical areas in the United States. what's What's an MSA? Well, this is nothing more than a piece of geography that the federal government, the Commerce Department in particular, has identified as an area in which uh, business and commerce takes place. So as opposed to saying, let's look at this city, we're going to look at the metropolitan statistical area. A good example might be, for example, uh, Sacramento, California, right? So the city of Sacramento, actually a relatively small town, a little over 400,000 people. The metropolitan statistical area, which includes Sacramento County and a number of other markets uh, nearby, Uh, which really represents what the market is when you think about Sacramento, it's over a million people. So that's the kind of thing that you want to be able to look at is metropolitan statistical areas. That's how we focus on them. There are lots of metropolitan statistical areas uh, across the United States, well over 300, uh, 360, 370, some some number like that, I think, at at last check. We look at all of those metropolitan statistical areas (laughs) – Don't you love trying to say those words, right? Uh, And when we look at them, 
we benchmark on a number of criteria against U.S. averages. So we're looking for markets that are growing faster than the rest of the country on average, that have stronger employment opportunities than the rest of the country on average, so on and so on and so on. So that's, that's how we think about it. Now we want to talk about some of the specific criteria that we look at so that you can understand better where you might want to place those hard-earned dollars that you have. I've already mentioned several criteria, population and growth, employment growth, income growth. Let's talk about those for a minute. Population and population growth, two different things. From a population standpoint, we think it makes sense to invest in markets that are at least a certain size, large enough that you can have some opportunity for an actual market to exist. Does that mean that you can't make money investing in a small market, maybe a market that only has 50,000 people in it? Uh, no, you could certainly make money in that market. There's simply more risk associated with doing that. We think being in larger markets minimizes that risk. So what's a large market? We certainly like being in markets that are half a million, maybe a million in size or larger. That's awfully a fairly small number across the United States. It's certainly not the 360 or 70 MSAs that exist. Uh, where would we draw the line? Somewhere around a couple hundred thousand. You could maybe go a little below that. Sometimes you'd like to be a little above that. But a couple hundred thousand is a good place to start looking, we think, in terms of drawing that line. Once you've identified, all right, here's all the markets that are larger than that benchmark that I've just identified. What about population growth, employment growth, and income growth? Population growth. We want to see over the last five years, and ideally maybe over even a 10-year time frame, some stability and increasing uh, growth numbers. If you look at the U.S. in general, population's been moving from the Northeast, where it was heavily concentrated for a long period of time, it's been moving south, it's been moving west. So it's not surprising that a lot of the markets that we see that meet this criteria we've identified for population growth are in the south and western part of the United States. Not a lot of uh, markets hit this criteria uh, in the north, uh, for example, the northern plains, uh, or in the northeast. How does population growth drive demand? Pretty, pretty straightforward. In the United States right now, a little over 60% of households own their home, which means a little less than 40% rent, whether they rent a single family, or they rent in a smaller complex like a duplex or a fourplex, or they rent in a, a complex like we might own, 100, 200, 300 units. Well, if you have population growth of a million uh, or 2 million people, let's say it's 2 million, you have 2 million people of population growth in the United States with an average household size of around 2 or a little over 2, that means you've got something in the neighborhood of a million new households, of which about 600,000 of those, a little over 600,000, are going to be owners, and around 400,000 or a little less are going to be renters. Now, that's obviously spread across the entire United States, but that math works for each individual market that you'd look at as well. Population growth then becomes one of the factors we want to look at. Employment growth. We want to see 
historical, uh, and for all these, we're, we're looking not just at historical but forecasts. We want to see employment growth that's above the U.S. average. So we'd like to see there being more jobs in these markets over time than there is in the rest of the country. And we want to add income growth to that. So it's not just additional jobs, but we want to see there being a growth in the quality of those jobs. And that really means that we've got markets that not only are getting larger, so we have more physical demand just from there being more rental households, but that those rental households have better employment opportunities and more income to be able to support the kinds of improvements we want to make in these assets that are going to drive value. Those are the criteria we've already talked about a little bit, but what else do we look at beyond that? Let's talk about that population growth in a little more detail, and this is where we get into some additional criteria. We want to understand what the net domestic migration is. What's net domestic migration? That's a term we haven't used before. So let me give you an example. When we talk about net migration, what we're really looking at is the net growth that occurs from population moving inside the United States. So a family that might live in the Northeast or the Northern Plains that's going to move down into Texas or Georgia or Arizona, some market like that. So let's take two example markets. We've got one market with a million people. We've got another market with a million people. Each of them experiences a certain amount of migration into the market from the United States. These are, again, local migration. One market has 30,000 people moved to the market. The other has 50,000 moved to the market. Which market would you rather invest in? Well, I'd, I'd rather invest in the one that's got 50,000 moving in. That's about 5% growth. The other is only 3% growth. Let's invest in the one with more growth. We want to understand net migration, though, because there are markets in the United States that are transitory in which there's a lot of churn. Let's say that the market that has 50,000 people move in has 30,000 people move out. Absolutely markets that look like that. So the net migration there is actually only a gain of 20,000. In our market with 30,000 new folks moving in, the loss might be only 5,000 that year, meaning the net migration, the net addition to the market is 25,000. So we actually have 2.5% growth in one market and only 2% growth in the other market. Understanding net migration is an important element of understanding how the market is growing. We're really looking for markets with greater stability. So that's one of the key components we want to understand. Another component we want to understand is how much of that growth comes from immigration. Now we're looking at a family that might live in Europe or Asia or Africa or South America, somewhere outside of the United States, and they're choosing to come to the United States to make their life. All of us are descendants of immigrants. Uh, some of us have immigrant stories that are recent uh, within the last generation. Some of us, maybe it's many generations. Why do I mention generations? Well, generally speaking, it takes one generation for a family of immigrants that come to the United States to demonstrate home ownership in the same percentages, the same proportionality as the existing base population. So, for example, if your family migrated to the United States three generations ago, 
about two generations ago, they started to look like uh, a traditional U.S. family, uh, an existing U.S. family, uh, in terms of home ownership percentages. If you actually just migrated to the United States, you're potentially uh, more likely to be a renter than you are a homeowner. So understanding how much of the growth comes from immigration helps us understand some of the characteristics about what at least the next 20 years might look like in terms of home ownership rates there. So a market that has a meaningful amount of immigration is going to demonstrate lower home ownership and higher rental numbers, not just for the next few years, but five years, 10 years, 15 years, and so on. And it will be about 20 or 25 years before those immigrant families have home ownership rates that are similar to the rest of the country, meaning that roughly 60-40 split that we talked about a moment ago. So we're looking for population growth, strong net migration inside the United States, uh, a meaningful amount of immigration. Uh, we'd love to see great employment growth and solid income growth combined with that. What are some other things that we want to understand? Well, when we talk about the local market in particular, uh, we want to make sure that individual neighborhoods have good employment distribution. We also want to understand that about the major market. There are markets that uh, every year we look at in our study that absolutely meet the criteria we just described, and they are driven by one particular industry or, in some instances, one particular employer. And we think that simply has too much risk associated with it. For example, there are markets in the United States that are growing rapidly, great employment, great income growth, all the criteria we just described, and they're fueled by, for example, a large U.S. military base, which in general could be thought of as something fairly stable. The practical reality is, especially for those of us that have been around a while, we remember base closings. And could that happen again? Absolutely it could. Is it likely? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's a risk we think that you don't necessarily need to take on because there are markets that have more diverse employment. So that's one of the things we want to look at and understand. Uh, environmental issues. Uh, is there anything about that particular market that would cause us to be concerned whether it's something about um, water or uh, chemical uh, pollution or other issues that might be associated with that. We also are going to look at some of the specifics relative to the multifamily marketplace, things like what kind of vacancy rates is the market demonstrating, uh, what cap rates, which effectively is how much does it cost to buy a dollar of income. Uh, when you're purchasing in that market rate, how how tight have those cap rates become? Absorption, which means when you build new units in a market, uh, does it take six months for those new units or leased up? Does it take a year? Does it take two or three years? Just what that looks like. And in all of those instances, obviously, we want to see more favorable cap rates and absorption and so on. Another factor we want to take a look at is the balance between landlords and tenants in terms of regulation. Tenants have rights. That is without question. A tenant that pays their rent on time and abides by the terms and conditions of the lease should have free and quiet enjoyment of that property, and there's no question about that. A landlord should also be able to expect that tenants are going to pay rent on time 
and when they don't, that there's going to be a fair and equitable way to address that. That's true in a vast majority of markets in the United States. It is not true in every market in the United States, and that's something for you to be aware of, is what is the balance between landlord rights and tenants' rights. They both absolutely have rights, and there should be a process for resolving disputes. It shouldn't be one-sided. We no more think that landlords should be able to run roughshod over tenants than we think that tenants should ultimately be able to control the property that's owned by the property owner. So that's one of the factors to take a look at when you're thinking about the market you want to invest in. We've talked a lot about historical numbers, looking back over five years, over 10 years. We absolutely need to take into account what the future looks like. Uh, There are a couple of markets, for example, that we have some involvement in uh, where we've had assets, and uh, they've been fantastic from a growth standpoint. Uh, Lots of really solid growth, great histories, and we've been able to ride that wave. And as you look to the future, we scratch our heads a little bit with, well, where's the continued growth going to come from? The market's kind of grown to saturation. There's not a lot of physical room left to develop. There's, uh, there's relatively little growth that may continue to happen. We don't really see a lot of employment growth in the future. That would actually be a market that we'd be looking at potentially exiting or at least minimizing the amount of exposure we'd have there. As compared with maybe looking at a market where historically the growth has been solid but not extraordinary and the future forecasts look really solid and potentially extraordinary, That's the kind of market we want to be in so that we not only enjoy growth over time, but when it does come time to exit, and we would recommend that everybody have an exit plan when they get into an investment. When it does come time to exit, we want to be in a position where we're exiting in a positive environment because that will give us the maximum number of potential buyers and going to drive up the value of our particular asset. These factors generally deal with the demand side of the equation. Absorption's got a little bit to do with the supply side. We want to focus a little bit now on the supply side in a little more detail. Factors like how much new construction is going on in that particular market. Obviously, you'd like to be in a market where there's not a lot of new supply coming online. If there is new supply coming online, Where is it located? Is it in a certain piece of the geography as opposed to others? That's a factor you you could take into account. What class is it focused on? Because of new construction costs, much of the new development is Class A. We're big advocates around Class B. You've heard us refer to it as the Goldilocks class. That's an area that we really think presents a great opportunity. Even though there is growth in Class A, As long as it doesn't encroach on B, and what I mean by that is this, is let's say you've got a market where the average rent for a Class B is $1,000 and the average rent for a Class A is $2,500. If Class A gets overbuilt, those rents will drop. They drop to $2,200 to $2,000, not a lot of impact on Class B. If they get down to $1,500 or $1,400, the delta between A and B is getting pretty small, and that delta is really an issue then because we will lose tenants out of Class B that will move up to a Class A as that margin gets tighter and tighter. There aren't that many tenants that are going to move from a Class B to a Class A when their rent would double or more. Looking at that delta and understanding that's an important uh, factor. We also want to understand what other kinds of developments going on in the community. 
is there new infrastructure that's being built? So new, uh, new highways, uh, new water systems, new uh, communities. Is there a planned community that's, uh, that's coming in? Those are all factors that really fit into the supply side. And what we love to see is a market that has all this great growth going on and at the same time has a relatively small amount of new supply in the space that we're focused on. So again, we like Class B. Those are all the factors we look at, and as I said, we look at that on a national basis. If you're a local owner-operator, right, so you've got a few dollars squirreled away, you're excited about multifamily real estate, you're listening to our podcasts and going to the uh, learning center at marapolling.com and reading the white papers and getting educated about what the multifamily space looks like, and your focus is to buy a single-family home or maybe a fourplex in your community where you can manage it yourself, well, how could you apply these same factors to the analysis that you'd be doing? That's a great question, and we do have some guidance for you there. Obviously, our focus is let's look across the entire country and find the safest markets to invest in by using these criteria to really cherry-pick the places where we can have solid demand, limited supply, and we believe that not only reduces risk, but improves our opportunity for a wonderful total return. If I'm going to manage the property myself and I live in Colorado, I can't buy an asset in Georgia and manage it myself. That's not going to work. So I need to be able to look in my local community and determine the best way for me to invest. Ideally, you live in a market with a population of 200,000 or more. If you don't, you probably want to be looking for potentially smaller assets. So you're not looking to buy a 60-unit complex uh, by yourself or maybe with an investment group. Uh, You'd be looking to buy maybe a smaller property, so you're exposed to less risk associated with all of that. You certainly want to make sure that you're still looking at items like population growth and employment growth and income growth. You may be looking at those on a smaller scale, So if within the geography that you look at in terms of what you could manage, is there a community that's growing more rapidly than the other communities? That's one of the items you want to look at. Again, you want to look at what those elements are that are driving the growth. Uh, How much of that is migration, people moving in and around uh, your city or your state or the country, and how much of that is immigration? Again, immigrants are going to be more likely to rent than they are to own. If in your community that you're looking at, there is an area of town that's highly dependent on one particular employer or one particular industry, you probably want to look for properties maybe in a different part of the community where there's a little more diversity in terms of the employment from that particular standpoint. You're going to want to understand uh, factors like what vacancies in the market is, what kind of prices uh, properties have been going for in the past. Uh, You'll also want to understand absorption. Uh, Where is there new construction coming on? So uh, you live in a small community. Uh, You've got maybe uh, 200,000 people in the metropolitan area that you're in, and there is new development. There's uh, 300 new units coming online in the next two years, and they're all clustered in one side of town. It's a factor you'd want to look at in terms of if you're maybe five, eight, ten miles away from that new development, you're probably isolated enough from it that there won't be an impact. 
Again, remember we've talked about previously, and it's in our uh, eight tips to buy right white paper, that uh, around a five-mile radius from a property really describes the area where tenants are going to live, work, recreate, and so on. So if you're more than five miles away, you're probably not going to be competing as strongly with that particular asset. Understand what the landlord-tenant laws are for your community. To the extent that you can, work with your attorney so that you structure your agreements, your leases, so that they're as uh, fair and balanced as you possibly can have them. As we said, absolutely support tenants' rights, and at the same time, we want to support investors' and property owners' rights. There should be an appropriate balance between all of those factors. So you can apply this same criteria that we've described on a national basis to a local market. Are you going to be able to drive as much risk out as you can nationally? No, you're not, because you're going to be uh, forced to deal with certain issues that are simply a function of the geography that you happen to be in. Now, maybe you live in one of the markets that actually meets all these criteria on a national basis. If you do, then that's fantastic. But obviously, most folks in the United States don't. When we look at, again, those 360, 370 markets across the country, there are about 25 that meet this criteria that we've described. So the vast majority of us in the United States live in a market that doesn't meet this criteria from a national standpoint. Last point we want to make uh, for, uh, for today about where to make this uh, critical investment is uh, to address the question of, well, do I have to invest in markets with this criteria? No, you don't. Uh, can you make money investing in a market that doesn't meet these criteria? Sure you can. There will be more risk associated with that. So if you're thinking about putting your hard-earned dollars into a market, whether it's through an individual investment that you're going to own and operate yourself or with a firm that you're working with like Mara Poling, and you're going to invest in a market that has modest to little population growth, relatively stagnant employment growth, uh, maybe declining uh, average incomes, that has potentially maybe some environmental issues or is overly dependent on one particular sector from a uh, employment standpoint. Maybe there's a lot of new supply coming on. Uh, the landlord-tenant laws are very, very skewed towards, uh, towards tenants and away from property owners. Um, that's not a market I'd be excited about putting my money in or putting our investors' dollars in. Can you make money there? Sure you can. You're really going to have to be very focused on the specifics of each individual asset that you would look at, and there's simply going to be more risk associated with it because any one of those factors we just described could ultimately cause you to have problems in terms of the operation of the asset and your ultimate exit. We think it makes more sense to take that risk off the table and to put yourself in a position where you can sleep well at night, not worry about what's going on with your investment, because you know that you've done the due diligence on the front end to invest in a market that makes sense. If you're interested in learning more about all of these particular factors as well as the other tips that we have, to learn how you can move risk off the table and buy right, then I encourage you, go to the Learning Center at marapoling.com. That's M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Visit the Learning Center, and you'll find uh, a number of topics, lots of great material there, but go to the topic, Eight Tips to Buy Right. You can download the, uh, the white paper that we have there. 
We have some other podcasts on the, uh, on the channel here that you can look at on the exact same subject. You can always shoot us an email. We'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. We're very committed to this educational process. We want to help you be successful as you're looking at the multifamily space, and we appreciate you taking the time to join us here today. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We look forward to seeing you next time on Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poli.